Ecclesiastes chapter 7. We did make it all the way through to 22 last week, and we are going to finish out the rest of chapter 7. I don't believe I'm going to go into chapter 8 today. I don't want to promise that because, as my wife said, if I lie in church, it doesn't really bode well. But I, did, I, didn't, I didn't want to follow up the rhyme that you said, though, either. So. That's good. <laughs> oh, Lord. Ecclesiastes chapter 7. But. Linda said she can take the kids today. Okay. They are back there. She's willing to do it. Go ahead. Thank you, Linda. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Awesome. Thank you, Linda. Well, the goldfish are hidden. So he's not going to be able to see them and be tempted by it. So, so before I go into the rest of chapter 7, there is a verse that I want to rewind and go to um, that was, I guess, somewhat skimmed over last week. One that I, um, you know, after getting home last Sunday, I'm going through reading through the rest of the chapter, and I'm like, I don't think I really elaborated on this. And it's really big, um, once again, in regards to the context of what's being spoken about in the author's wisdom the life that he's lived and, and stuff like that. And it's something that, once again, has been kind of the reoccurring theme um, in the sermons, I would say, over the last few weeks. And it's something that I just feel like deserves attention, again, because many of us in here, either within our own right, may struggle with this concept or this doctrine, or it's something maybe we just witness and see on a day-to-day basis with individuals and other people. And the thing that makes this, this verse so profound is, is that it's in the Old Testament and it really goes against Old Testament theology known by the people, once again, that wrote the Old Testament, these authors that we see, the, these, these Jewish individuals, right? And basically, in a, in a nutshell, the, the theology of the Old Testament was that if you do good, what happens? You're blessed. And if you do bad, what happens? And we find this played out in the New Testament when we see individuals that are lame and blind. Individuals and people obviously think that there is sin present, either from a past generation or themselves. This is why they were born this way. This is why stuff occurred and things took place. So I'm going to actually, we're, we're going to go to some passages here just to kind of open it up that kind of elaborates a little bit more on this doctrine. Um, I'm going to have you guys go to Psalm 37, 25. Psalm 37, 25. We're going we're gonna to use our Bibles a little bit today. Our fingers are going to get a workout, at least in the first part here. So you're going to go back. In Ecclesiastes, you're going to go back a couple books. You have Proverbs, and then you'll have Psalms. Once again, we're thinking Old Testament theology, okay? What was believed amongst the Israelites was that, hey, if we do good, good's going to happen to us. God's going to bless us. If we do bad, or if there's sin, God is going to curse us, and bad things will happen. And once again, there's some wiggle room there. There's some truth to that aspect, as we you know, just read through a psalm today about the wicked being destroyed and things like that. But once again, when we go into the New Testament, we, we um, go through the Gospels, we go through the epistles, we see that you know, 
Judgment doesn't always come in this life, but judgment will come. It is promised, right? And who is the righteous judge? Who's the one that is, that is called to take vengeance? It's God. It's Jesus, right? We are not called to do that. However, we struggle with that. So Psalm 37, 25. We're just going to go through a couple passages here. Okay, so you guys are going to use your fingers. 37:25 says, I was young and now I am old, yet I have never seen the righteous forsaken or their children begging bread. So once again, I was young and now I am old, yet I have never seen the righteous forsaken or their, their children begging bread. We read that, we hear that, we go, okay, the striving in my life needs to be that I am righteous. Why? Because if I am righteous, I am never forsaken. And even in the midst of it, my offspring, they're never going to be beggars. They're never going to go through anything. And this is a doctrine that has even worked its way into the church today. And I have you guys now go a book forward to Proverbs chapter 2. Told you you're going to be uh, using your, your fingers here. Proverbs chapter 2. And you guys can even note these down as well, okay? Proverbs chapter 2, verse 21. For the upright will live in the land, and the blameless will remain in it. But the wicked will be cut off from the land, and the unfaithful will be torn from it. One more here, Proverbs 11, chapter 19. Couple chapters up, Proverbs 11, chapter, or Proverbs 11, verse 19. Truly, the righteous attain life, but whoever pursues evil finds death. We just basically kind of laid a foundation here of what is Old Testament theology. Amen? Like, and a lot of people, once again, in the church today would sit there and agree that, you know what, if I see people out there and they have all these amazing things and they say that they're a Christian, chances are that they're pretty righteous. And if I see people out there that say they're Christian and they have children that are sick or they themselves are afflicted with a sense of illness, their life from a worldly perspective doesn't seem that great, one would assume or could assume that maybe they have some sin in their life, right? So this is something that, once again, that, that is just a Old Testament theology. But when we read through certain books like Job, when we read through certain psalms like Psalm 73, and when we come to certain books like Ecclesiastes, we actually start to see this friction. It's kind of like this sandpaper being rubbed against Old Testament theology. So when we look here in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, starting off here at verse 14, when times are good, be happy, but when times are bad, consider this, God has made the one as well as the other. Therefore, no one can discover anything about their future. In the meaningless life of mine, or in some translations, in the, in the life of vanity, I have seen both of these. So the author is stopping here, and he is saying, I have lived this long life. I know Old Testament theology. I know and was raised to believe that the righteous attain life, that the wicked will be torn off from their land. All of these things are just put in his brain. But in the wisdom of things, and in him trying to attain this life, living by this kind of doctrine, this kind of theology, he says something very profound that all of us in here can attest to. He says, the righteousness perishing in their righteousness, 
and the wicked living long in their wickedness. I didn't stop at this last week. I didn't park and I didn't talk a lot about it, but I want to kind of just throw that out here to the body. How many of you can say amen to this? That there's people out there that seem to be good, righteous, God-fearing individuals, but they got a lot of stuff that they're dealing with. A lot of pain, illness, troubles of the world. And then there's people out there that you could probably, and we want to be mindful in our pointing fingers, as we've said, right? Because we're the sinner. But man, from the optics of things, these are some wicked individuals. And they just seem to be flourishing in everything that they do. Right? It's like they, they step over people. They, they do heinous things. They lie. They cheat. They steal. But it just seems like everything just seems to go their way. And even more so, they even live these long lives. You know what I mean? They even die at the age of like 95 or something. Peacefully in their bed. But these individuals that seem to just love the Lord, fear the Lord, they are just struggling. To say something like that, especially back in the Old Testament, would have been just seen as crazy talk. And here we have an individual, the author, wisest individual of his time, stopping and saying, you know what, I've lived this life where I've tried to pursue all these things, pleasure, knowledge, wisdom. I've had women, I've had money, I've had stuff. And at the end of my life, after reviewing and evaluating the things that I've been through, I've come to see numerous things. And he's using his life as an example. It's not your life, it's his life. My life of meaningless. I've done it wrong. I've lived it the wrong way. And he's wrote this book for our wisdom today because many of us in this room today still struggle with this mindset that we have to chase and go after something to bring something of peace and happiness when the only thing that the author sitting here saying is is in the push-pulls of life, in the things that just don't make sense, in the things where it seems like the righteous are struggling and the wicked are thriving, you have to fear God. Love the Lord. Nothing else matters. The women, the wisdom, the knowledge, the money, the fame, the accolades, the possessions. This man has had it all. This is a book that, in my opinion, could be preached every Sunday in America, especially to the church. Because we can stop and we can so easily think, and I will say every Christian in their walk with God has done this. And it's pride. I'm guilty of it. Man, I'm a faithful Christian. Why would this stuff be happening in my life? Amen? We don't even need to say ouch to it. It's amen. I faithfully feel like I worship, I do this, I do that. And oh, to add salt to the wound, I'm looking over here at this individual who seems to be wicked, who seems to have everything under the sun. What the author is sitting here saying is, is that stuff is meaningless. I mean, if you can't take it from anyone, take it from this guy right here. He's had it all, literally at his disposal, to come to a place and go, don't chase it. You're chasing after something you can't grab. 
And then once again, our lives attest to it as well, because as I've said, at the end of many people's lives that I've had, and I'll say the privilege of being a part of, they look back and say the same thing. It's not worth it. In the moment, it may seem like it's worth it. In the moment, it seems like I need this thing to make me feel better. In the moment, I need to have this name. I need to have this relationship. I need to have this much money. I need to have this job. At the end of the day, if you don't have a fear or a reverence for God, it means absolutely nothing. There is no contentment in the possessions that you own. There's no contentment in the lot that God has given you. And contentment is something that we as people so desperately need in this world today. Am I wrong? We struggle with this. I used to have to go, go, go all the time. Be doing something, be somewhere. Now, this is I enjoy sitting on my porch and watching the mountains. There you go. My wife and I will sit and watch squirrels run around as I sit in my robe in a rocking chair. And that is joy and peace to us. But you know what? It's, it's, it's peace. It's contentment. It's something that once again, it is far better to know God and be in poverty in this world than to not know Him and have all the riches that the world can offer. I mean... So many people have been in this position where they get all the stuff that the world can offer just to come to find out that it's not fulfilling that void. And that's a scary place to be in because they've strived, they've worked, they've sacrificed, they've lost family, right? They've hurt people. They've, they've done whatever to get it, only to get it to go that this means absolutely nothing. It's not doing what I thought it would do by attaining this. This is what the author is trying to literally scream to us thousands of years later for us to understand and comprehend. Don't live the way that I lived. My perspective is skewed. It, it's, it's under the sun. This is the stuff that I see. A man's perspective only sees and views things this way. We as Christians now know the full story. We live above the sun. We live for a life that's yet to come. So this makes sense for us when we package it up and we see the righteous pairing in their righteousness is the song that we just listened to that if I die, guess what? I get to be with the Lord. It's this paradox of existence. But culture says that this is something that we strive to try to avoid. Death is the worst thing that could possibly happen to you. But as Christians, our spirit goes to we long to depart. No, we don't go out there. I'm not asking Brent to go throw himself in front of a pickup truck so he can go meet Jesus today. But what I'm saying is, is that by God's will, Lord willing, that if Brent comes to know or see or experience something that is bringing him to the end of his life sooner than later, give God praise, right? Yes, God can heal him. God can do all these things. But you know what? He knows where he's going. And there's going to be a peace about him that the world knows nothing about. And this is what the author wants us to know. So once again, as I go through here, I just want to reread it to you. When times are good, be happy. There's nothing wrong with being happy when life seems to be good. So once again, as a pastor, I'm not sitting there saying like, you know, things are going good for us. Pastor Josh said we've we got to be mindful how joyful we are, though. because It's going to change real quick. No, I'm not saying that. God gives you these times. Praise him in the midst of these times. 
got a job where you can pay your bills. You got money to where you can put food on the table. You got clothes on your back. Your family's healthy. Your family's safe. Praise his name in the midst of that. It's a blessing, right? He goes on to sit here and say, though, when times are bad, consider this. Consider this. God has made the one as well as the other. We talked about this last week. So even when things aren't good, your praise for him should never stop because the joy that you have in him never ceases. Does that mean that you can't cry, that you can't lament, that you can't be scared? No. It's all the more reason that you're going to draw yourself closer to the Lord in the midst of it. None of us in here has a perfect faith. Amen? No one does. If we didn't, you guys, or if we did, you guys wouldn't be sitting in front of me right now. There'd be no need for church. We wouldn't pray. We wouldn't want encouragement from one another because we would be set. Go through our days perfectly just having this faith that we know was just going to carry us through our days. Nope, we're going to have days where we struggle. God uses his children for his children. Our horizontal worship and our vertical worship are essential. And he goes on to say, Therefore, no one can discover anything about their future. In this meaningless life of mine, I've seen both of these, the righteous perishing in their righteousness and the wicked living long in their wickedness. So remember, God is going to be the righteous judge. He is the righteous judge. It's not our job. So when you see something like this taking place in life, you still just rejoice in the Lord. You still work on your relationship with God. Walk with him. Understand and know that this is just the paradox of life that the author of Ecclesiastes is talking about here. Amen? So now, we're going to go over and finish out chapter 7. But I wanted to just cover that because, like I said, it was something that I knew I crossed over last week, something that I thought would be significant for us to hear. So, Ecclesiastes, we are going to start at chapter or verse 23 in chapter 7. All this I tested by wisdom, and I said... Now, there's going to be some changes of wording here that I will make sure that I add in, especially from other translations. I, I expressed to my wife that I do struggle with the NIV and aspect of Ecclesiastes, but I try to make sure that I unpack it in a way for you guys to understand what's being said, okay? So the author is saying that he's tested this by wisdom, okay? Learned experience. And I said, I'm determined to be wise... But this was beyond me. Whatever exists is far off and most profound. Who can discover it? Now, many translations, ESV, KJV, they will have more of this, or this, this uh, expression of these things are deep, very deep. Okay? NIV doesn't say that. And I think it's missing the mark here. What is the author saying? That the things of God, guess what? We truly can't understand and know. From his perspective, what he's saying and even in ours as a church, we have the Holy Spirit in us. We're called to put on the mind of Christ. But there still are things of God and his infinite mind that we can't comprehend or understand. It's impossible, okay? The reason why we see the word deep, very deep, I told my wife I wanted to explain this to you. In Hebrew, they don't use adjectives, okay? There's no adjectives to express something to be a certain way. So if you really wanted to express something to be profound, 
or to be extreme, you would repeat it over and over again. So church, little pop quiz. If something was holy, would you say in Hebrew it was very holy or what would you say? Holy, holy, holy. Thank you. You have to multiply it. You have to say it. So when they would repeat the words in Hebrew, that was a way of really putting kind of that exclamation point on the word, okay? So what the author sitting here saying is, is these things of God, they're deep. They're very deep. They're deep, deep, deep. Like, I can't comprehend it. I've put my wisdom, my, my errant wisdom to the test in this, and I just can't come to understand all the things that God has out there. How many of you in this room can attest to that? I, I don't understand everything about God. But do I trust him, especially in the midst of not getting something? Yes. And where we can struggle as people, where we can struggle as creation is, it's those very moments and those very times that sometimes we want to find ourselves being angry at God. Because we think we have a right or a privilege to know everything that God is doing. We are not God. He is God. He is creator. We are creature. We are creation. And I'm good with that. Because guess what? Many things I'm sure that God knows that I really don't want to know. He knows when my time's going to be up. I've asked people this question, and it's ironic the answers you get. How many of you in here would like to know the day you're going to die? Nope. Right? Like, it doesn't sound appealing to me to know that I'm... Some people say they would like to know. I don't believe that. So these are things, once again, it's okay to, to come to this place to go that there are things that are deep, very deep, 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 deep of God that I don't get. In my wisdom, I've applied it to it, and that's what I've come to find out. Who can discover it, the author says. So I turn my mind in verse 25 to understand, to investigate, and to search out wisdom and the scheme of things. Now, some of your Bibles may say accounts, okay? This word scheme in the Hebrew is making reference to or reasons, if you will. Trying to go and find out the reason of things. I relate to this because I felt like I was that kind of person in creation. I kind of wanted to try to figure out things, connect the dots. Well, the author here is sitting and saying the same thing. I've turned my mind to try to pinpoint and piece together why do things happen the way that they happen? What's the reason behind it? Okay? And he goes on to say, and to understand the stupidity of wickedness and the madness of folly. This word of should really be as. So he's, he should be saying to understand stupidity as wickedness and madness as folly. Okay? I find more bitter than death. Now, this is kind of a shift here in context. And it's something that I, I spoke about a little bit at men's group on Thursday. And Nikki, your husband, told me that he was glad he had to work today because I had to read this. And I go, <laughs> I get the, the privilege to explain it. Because as we've known and have talked about, Solomon had a lot of wives. And he is going to dedicate these last few verses to really explaining and expressing out of all of his shortfalls, out of all the vanities that he lived out, the things that he pursued, there's one that seemed to really just trump them all. And it was women. Okay? Now, some men in here are saying amen or ouch under their breath to that. Solomon is wanting to... Solomon, Solomon is want. But there's, there's a message here that I think that we can unpack, and this is why I don't feel like I need to go into chapter 8, 
because I feel like this is something that we can really open up and discover together as a church. And once again, I, context is important when we read this because you'll see what, it, what, you'll see what he says. Okay. <laughs> I find more bitter than death. So think about everything we've read up through these chapters. He, he's just even given us a little expose of other things, right? The, the righteous that are dying, the wicked that are living and, and prevailing. All these things that he's saying, something that I have found more bitter than death itself is the woman who's a snare, okay? The woman who is a snare, whose heart is a trap. Some translations say fetter, okay? And whose hands are chains. The man who pleases God will escape her, but the sinner she will ensnare. What is he saying here? So I'm sitting down with these men on Thursday night, and I go, shift of context here, but listen to the words that he is saying and expressing and talking about a woman. Hands like a chain. And I'm looking at these men, and they're sitting there, and they're kind of blushing. And I go, the touch of a woman, right? Especially if your heart's not in the right place, which he'll go on to sit there and talk about. The touch of a woman is extremely powerful. And I don't want to make the young men blush in here. It is. Goes on to sit there and say, hands are like a chain, right? Heart is a trap. Solomon's viewpoint or the author's viewpoint of women was just to simply fulfill a desire that he had. Had all the women at his disposal. They were seen as objects to him. But even being objectified, there was a power that they, in a sense, held over him. A power that I believe all women have when it comes to the relationship with men. A power, though, nonetheless, that should put men in a place to understand the burden and the significance and the responsibility that they have with women and how they treat them and how they lead them. Because these women, if born and raised to be simply just individuals that are used to fulfill pleasures of men, will develop a mindset of who they are and how they should live. And I sit there and say, and you guys can quote me on this, that soft men make hard women. You can write that down. You can say, Pastor Josh said that. Soft men make hard women. And I sit there and think the amount of wives that Solomon had to have, the amount of hard women that had to come from his kingdom. Their mindset might be that the only thing that they were born to do was to simply go out there and entice men, to allure men, all of that. But Solomon, even in the midst of him trying to have this mindset that this woman in front of me is just simply an object to fulfill a desire that I have, even in the midst of it, that woman still had a control and a power over Solomon, over the author. Many men in here can say amen or ouch to that. Yes, women were created to help fulfill the work of the kingdom with a man. But now men can use this to try to help the woman fulfill the desire that the man has set forth to say, this is what the woman needs to do for me, not for God. And this is where women become hard and women become broken. This then puts men's responsibility, men's significance and how they lead their wives on the forefront 
And I looked at the men on Thursday and I said, this is why scripture says that we are called to present our wives without blemish to God. Does that mean perfect? No. But I think every man with a woman, with a wife, should stop and go, if my wife was to die tomorrow, am I going to be presenting a broken, battered bride to God? What You are going to be held responsible. And this is the other thing I got to throw on the men's shoulders last week. And they said, you need to stop. You need to stop. I'm feeling too much weight. And I'm laughing. I go, no, you need to hear it. You as men, you're not guilty maybe for the sin of your women. But guess what? You are responsible for it. And I take that back to the garden. Who ate of the tree, church? Who did God go to in the midst of the transgression? What does he say? What is it you have done? Bride's just standing there. Eve's just standing there. Then the blame game starts, right? Oh, the blame game. We love that in marriage. This woman that you put in the garden with me, you need to be talking to her. No. She might have done it, but I'm holding you responsible for it. So you see how this identity of a biblical marriage starts to change maybe a little bit, maybe what we've seen throughout the generations, especially in this country? We've talked about this in our marriage series where men tend to take on this authoritative fist pounding, I'm the man, I need to do this, this, and this. That's not being married. It's not. You are the leader of your home. You are the head of your home. But you've got to make sure that you get the identity of it down properly. It's a burden. It's a responsibility. Right? Solomon, though, is giving us just a glimpse. The author is giving us a glimpse into just this relationship component between man and woman. I've objectified all of these women, and they still yet have this power over me. More bitter than death. Oh, what words, right? Like, he can't shake what has come from these interactions. He goes on to sit here and say, I'll, I'll go back over 26 because I want you guys to hear it. I find more bitter than death the woman who is a snare, whose heart is a trap, and whose hands are chains. The man who pleases God will escape her, but the sinner she will ensnare. Look, says the teacher, this is what I have discovered. Adding one thing to another to discover the scheme of things. While I was searching but not finding, this is the part that I have the privilege of saying, and I'll explain context here, but I want you guys to understand what the author is really saying. So he's, he's piled up all these things, all these reasons, all these accounts on why things are the way that they are. And while I was still searching but not finding, I did find one, I, um, one upright man among a thousand. But guess what he says he didn't find? I didn't find one upright woman among them all. Men look at me and they go, you get to preach that on Sunday? I say, you get to preach that on Sunday. But what is the author really saying? You know what? Women were seen as like cattle back then, especially in Solomon's kingdom. They were objects. 
their breed. That was, yeah, satis right? just to, to satisfy pleasure, to make babies. That was their purpose. What Solomon is saying, or the author is really saying, that even out of all these people, I've really just come to find that men are one-tenth of one percent better than women in the context of what he's even speaking about. One out of a thousand, I found one upright man, but no upright women. So do the math there. One-tenth of one percent better. So I want you guys to hold firm to that. I want you to, 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 to grasp that. And he goes, this only have I found. God created mankind upright, but they have gone in search of many schemes. And this word scheme is being used dif differently in the Hebrew. It's almost being used as a sense of like, like a mechanism. Like, I, 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 man's going to go out and try to find all these different things and ways to try to do things to bring about some kind of product from it. So it's not so much like what was used earlier, but in the Hebrew, it actually kind of means like a warlike machine. Like chaos will ensue from these things that man is trying to do. We were created properly with God, upright. But since the fall, we have literally gone out trying to find our own way of things. And it's produced nothing but chaos under the sun. Right? I mean, the greatest ills, the greatest things that we've seen in existence in our time has been at the hands of who? Us. And I close with this, and I didn't know if I wanted to elaborate on this or not too much, but I feel like there's, this is a place for it, especially in saying what I just said. I hear sermons preached a lot from the pulpit, especially as of late. And I'm not standing up here to sound haughty or like I have it all figured out, but I do want to leave it with this body and, and have you guys just think about this. The world's getting a little bit more nuts, I think we can say, or at least we're getting a, a front row seat of it, right? Like, we've talked about this, and I, I don't want to spend too much time on that, but I hear a lot of they talk in the church, and I hear a lot of they talk from the pulpit. They're coming to get your kids. They're coming to take your freedom. They're, they, them. As a pastor, I stand up here and say, you, us, we once were, right? We can't live as a church, and I, and I might have expounded on this a little bit before. We're not called as a church to live this them versus us life. Scripture doesn't attest to it. The reason why we're not called to do that is, guess what? We were once them. We were once they. We were once the ones walking and living in the passions of our flesh, walking blindly in sin. We talked about this a couple weeks ago, about us, the sinner. God have mercy on me, the sinner. And I've heard people sit there and say that you have to be mindful and abstaining and staying away from them and don't touch them, don't be around them. If you want to be honest, the Bible actually says to stay away from people that say they're Christian that cause infractions and divisiveness and that are lazy in their faith. Paul says don't have anything to do with them. He's not talking about the world. You guys have Jesus Christ in you. You're a Christian, Christ in you, right? Me in Christ. I take Christ wherever I go. I have the Holy Spirit in me to give me discernment and wisdom. 
Des and I were walking around the block this last week and she put all these goofy lights on her bike. She's like, Dad, I want to go for a walk. I'm laying in bed, it's 9.30 at night, and I'm like, get up and we'll go around the block. And I love street lights. I've loved street lights ever since I, yeah. Brandon said the same thing when I told him this on Thursday. Like, people don't like street lights. I just love them. I love, there's just something about the imagery of them, like light and dark, I guess. My wife's like, ugh, ugh. I love it. Used to stare at them as a kid, going to the city and stuff, especially in the winter, and you see the street lights with the snow and all. Like, I love it. So we're walking around the block, and Des is on her bike, and we stop, and I'm looking at the street light, and the street light is this fixed object that is letting out light the same way every night, day after day. And as I'm standing there, my daughter is just kind of doing these circles in the street. And I'm like, this street light is like God's will in my life. Yeah, I'm preaching a sermon to myself. So there's only so many places that the light was illuminating. And the further that I got away from the object of the light, what happened to the light? Started to dissipate a little bit, right? Started to get dimmer and dimmer. And even in the yards and stuff where branches were overhanging, there was little glimpses of light that you could see. But I stopped and I looked and I go, this street light is literally like God's will. It's objective. It's the same today as it was yesterday and it'll be the same tomorrow as it is today. And I thought, as I stand in this light, I can see the things that I need to see. Now we're told as a church to pray for wisdom. We're told as a church to pray for discernment. Do we do that? Is that a, is that a practice? Is that a discipline? And I would sit there and say that we lack at it. I can struggle with it at times. I know when I'm struggling with things and stuff like that, I may want to rely on my own wisdom and my own understanding of things. Once again, as we just went through that, I need to go to the Lord. Even though his stuff is deep, 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 I need to go to him. And this street light was an example for me and a reminder, even in the midst of a walk with my daughter, that I need to hold firm and stay firm and close to God. Because it says in the book of James, those who draw near to God, guess what he does? He draws near to them. So when we speak about church, we speak about encouragement, we speak about small groups and all that, we need one another through these crazy times. And guess what? We even need one another to remind us that we were once like the world as well. We need one another to stay humble. We need one another to remind each other where we belong as Christians, and we belong in the light of things. That's it. It isn't us versus them. It's us knowing that we were once them, so now we want to go out and speak the truth so they then can now become like we are today. Amen? Close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, I just give you thanks once again for your word. Lord, I just pray that your word does what it's called to do, and I trust that it does, that it just plants and roots itself in the heart of those that are listening, Lord. That we take your word even in a means of conviction, Lord, and, and we, we trust and, and allow it to just continue to grow truth in us, to continue to just shape and mold our hearts, our hearts that you are turning into a heart of flesh, Lord. Lord, I just give you thanks once again for just the opportunity to be a vessel, to be able to preach and teach your word. And Lord, I just give you thanks for the people that are here today, that are, are sitting here and, and listening and putting themselves in the position of the sinner um, to know and to understand what your grace has done for them. So, Lord, I pray for blessing over these individuals in this room today, Lord, and that blessing is, is your peace. It's your contentment that only you can bring and that the world just tries to show us counterfeit. 
Lord, I thank you once again for just this day and this gathering. It is in your name, Jesus Christ, that we pray these things. Amen. You guys have a good week, and I will see you guys next week at baptism. You didn't bring it with that. Nope.